This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. We're going to travel up to Chico to speak with the general manager of KZFR, Rick Anderson, a little bit later in this segment, or perhaps the next segment, to talk about their 21st birthday bash taking place up there, celebrating the uh, the excellent work they've been doing at that fine community radio station. I hope also that um, a lot of people listening to our broadcast here in the greater Sacramento area will travel up and help them celebrate 21 years of community radio. We know we can count on our old pal Will Durst before this segment's out. We may also try and reach out and speak with one of our local KDVS DJs who just got a nice write-up in Sacktown Magazine. But let us begin this program as we like to do with On This Date in History. The date in question is the 28th of July. If my memory serves me correct, by the way, July used to be called Quintilus in the Roman system, but Julius Caesar decided to name it after himself, which then later led to his nephew, Octavian, when he became Caesar Augustus, to claim Sixtus, to rename the sixth month of the year, the Romans started their calendar in March, after himself. That's how we got July and August. Fortunately, the next emperor in the series, Tiberius, left September alone. But it was on July 28th, in 1586, that Sir Thomas Harriet introduced potatoes to Europe which he brought to Britain from Colombia. And no, we're unable to nail down the precise date of the invention of fish and chips. Two years later on the same date, Britain began its defeat of the Spanish Armada, which marked the decline of Spain and the ascent of Britain for world supremacy. And here's one I'd forgotten. On July 28th in 1914, World War I began, with Austria-Hungary declaring war on Serbia. This marked the beginning of the most catastrophic war in world history, which unfortunately was outdone 21 years later at the end of the first one. On July 28, 1932, President Herbert Hoover ordered the U.S. Army under General Douglas MacArthur to evict by force the bonus marchers from the nation's capital. We talked about this a few weeks back when we spoke with David Talbot about his excellent book, Devil Dog, about General Smedley Butler. In case you missed that review, those marchers were a group of 20,000 World War I vets who were in desperate financial straits and seeking promised cash payments for their veterans' bonus certificates. MacArthur's men set the marchers' camps on fire and the veterans were driven from the nation's capital. On a lighter note, one year later, July 28, 1933, the singing telegram was introduced. The first person to receive it apparently was American singer Rudy Valley on his 32nd birthday. In case the name doesn't ring a bell, Rudy Valley was a very popular singer in the late 20s and early 30s. He was uh, quite influential, helped produce a lot of different uh, uh, musicians later in his career, as I understand. And I had a chance to see Rudy Valley perform in The Boyfriend back circa around 19, I don't know, 72. No, Mr. Marilyn, that was not from the play The Boyfriend, but thanks for trying. Now, I would note that uh, a few days ago, I was out trying to clean up my garage, which is, shall we say, a work in progress. But during this, I uncovered a cache of material produced for this radio program about seven years ago. 
Sadly, most of it is still entirely relevant. So I'm going to dig into that and pull out some gems here, hopefully, as we uh, proceed with this show and next week's show. Starting with our quotes of the day. So these, I think, are recycled, but, you know, doggone it, one good turn deserves another. As we said back in 2004, as we quoted back in 2004, historian Daniel Bornstein said, Some are born great, some achieve greatness, and some hire public relations officers. An equip from the same pile, which I cannot resist, <laughs> author Josephine Tay, who said, Lack of education is an extraordinary handicap when one is trying to be offensive. I'm glad to note that we've put our educations to good use in being offensive on this program from time to time, when it's warranted. And although it didn't come from the pile, I have to put an added quip slash quote slash joke, which was sent to us by way of reminder from listener Gordon. Gordon, as a great admirer of the immortal Dorothy Parker, reminded me that she was once sent a request for an assignment from her editor while she was on her honeymoon, to which she apparently replied by return telegram, sorry, too effing busy, or vice versa. And as a bonus to that, let's also quote Dorothy Parker, when she once, who once said, the cure for boredom is curiosity. There is no cure for curiosity. And our joke of the day from the garage pile comes from comedian Stephen Wright, who said, Before you criticize someone, you should walk a mile in their shoes. That way, when you criticize them, you're a mile away, and you have their shoes. And doggone it, let's do another joke of the day. Also from the, uh, the pile of correspondence, this one dated from 3.13.03 from Jilly Bean. We have top 10 indicators that your employer has changed to a cheap HMO. Number 10, your annual breast exam is done at Hooters. Like number 9, directions to your doctor's office include take a left when you enter the trailer park. Number 2 was with your last HMO, the Prozac didn't come in different colors with little M's on them. Number 3, the only expense covered 100% is embalming. And my personal favorite, number 5, your primary care physician is wearing the pants you gave to Goodwill last month. Our stat of the day comes from the current issue of The Week magazine, and I love this one. According to the Washington Post, since 1980, the federal debt ceiling has been raised 39 times. That's right, folks. The thing that has the whole government in danger of shutting down because they can't decide on whether we're going to be able to raise that debt ceiling. Well, this would be the 40th time since 1980. If you're keeping score, and we hope you are, it was raised 17 times under Ronald Reagan. Bush 41, the nincompoop, raised it eight times. So between Reagan and Bush, it was raised 25 times in 12 years. George W. Bush wasn't against raising it. He raised it seven times. Now, those carefree, wildly spending Democrats like Bill Clinton, he raised it four times. And Obama's raised it three so far. So which political party do you think has been the most irresponsible when it comes to raising the national debt ceiling? Hmm? I think Will Durst will have some things to say about that a little later. But anyway, let's do the good, the bad, and the ugly.
According to the Week magazine, it was a good week last week for quiet dinners. After Mike Week, owner of McDane's Restaurant in Monroeville, Pennsylvania, announced he was banning children under six because parents no longer try to keep fussing kids quiet. You know, their child is apparently the center of the universe, said Week. And apparently it was a bad week this week for vigorous workouts. After 17 people performing a Thai bow workout on the upper floor of a South Korean skyscraper caused the building to shake for 10 minutes as if an earthquake had struck, which forced 3,000 people to evacuate. Scientists said that the shaking produced by Taibo collided with the building's vertical vibration cycle. You remember those lectures on harmonic motion back in high school? This apparently is why soldiers, when they're marching, when they come to a bridge, they do not, they do not continue to march in step for fear that the uh, motions of coming down and with, with the same foot back and forth, tromp, 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 could set up the wrong sort of oscillations in the bridge and perhaps cause it to collapse. And it was in a kind of an ugly week this current week for love and romance. With the news that Hugh Hefner's ex-fiancee, Crystal Harris, apparently went on the Howard Stern radio show and told the world that the 85-year-old Playboy founder lasted like two seconds in the bedroom. For his part, Hefner's retaliated by saying, that's not the case. Crystal lied about our relationship on Howard Stern, but I don't know why. Hefner added that although he is pro-Crystal, quote-unquote, he's happy to be in a better place with his new girlfriends, Anna-Sophia Berglund and Shara Betchard. And you know, my feeling is Hefner's a survivor. I believe he'll be able to mend his broken heart and get on with things. I should editorialize briefly, as a medical professional, that although the three pills currently on the market are fine medications, Viagra, Cialis, and Levitra, they do not solve everyone's problems, but fortunately, there are other remedies available. And no, we're not talking about a popsicle stick and duct tape as (laughs) someone that has a bad HMO plan. And to be very briefly serious... Although erectile dysfunction and premature ejaculation are the butt of countless jokes, it's a serious medical problem to people that suffer from it, and I urge you to get help if you need it. Although this may not be the ideal segue, I do have to note from the Only in America file the following. Apparently a Washington State man accused of molesting young boys is being allowed to view child pornography in jail. Apparently, since Weldon Gilbert is serving as his own lawyer, he is entitled, under discovery laws, to view the evidence against him, which includes more than 100 child pornography videos seized from his home. Said a jail spokesman, the whole thing is just very strange. But then, ladies and gentlemen, our entire court system is a little strange. Take it from me. I'm dying to tell you about some court shenanigans I was a first-hand witness to, but I don't think today's the day, and I'll have to <laughs> clear this some remarks I might want to make with, with my lawyer. But folks, 
I got some stories. All right, let's do a few items that uh, kind of raise one's blood pressure. At least they raise mine. Article from Bloomberg News, as reprinted in the Sacramento Bee from John Hetchinger, notes that reading a map is apparently a lost art for kids, according to simple geography tests. Notes the article, U.S. school children, noses in their smartphones, apparently don't know the lay of the land. Only one half of fourth graders correctly put the following in descending order of size. North America, the United States, California, and Los Angeles, according to a federal test known as the Nation's Report Card. Notes the article, as classroom time becomes an even more precious and scarce commodity, geography, along with subjects like history and the arts, are losing out in the zero-sum game that results from high-stakes testing. It's a quote from Roger Downs, a Penn State University geography professor. Apparently, Education Secretary Arne Duncan has cited this narrowing of the curriculum in calling for changes before the start of the next school year as regards the No Child Left Behind law, which ties federal funding to standardized math and reading tests. We've grabbed about this on the program before. If people don't know where anything is on the map and they're reading the paper or getting a news report, all they're hearing is in blah, blah, blah today, which is someplace not here, the following happened. I don't know how people can put the news in perspective. Well, I know that they can't put the news in perspective if they don't know where places are. And they don't know their history either, which is one reason we start every program with a bit of it. Constrained such as we are by the radio medium, we can't do much about geography. I mean, I know people rely on GPS, which they shouldn't, instead of reading maps, but this article points out that on the federal geography test last year, a third of fourth graders, only a third of fourth graders, could answer a question showing that they could determine distance on a map. I can't resist quoting from Paul Krugman, who noted in the New York Times last week, uh, that, well, it appears the GOP has gone insane. Noting that as the standoff continues over raising the debt ceiling, President Obama has offered extraordinary concessions to congressional Republicans. But because he's proposing raising revenue by closing tax loopholes for hedge fund managers, big oil companies, and the owners of multiple mansions, the GOP is refusing to sign on. Because I don't know why we'd want to tax big oil companies, the world's most lucrative industry. I mean, after all, BP did report a new leak at its Alaska oil fields last week and noted that a pipe had burst during testing at its 30,000-barrel-a-day Lisburn field north of the state, and it spilled eh, between 2,000 and 4,000 gallons of methanol and oil water onto the tundra. But BP said it has since then replaced corroded pipes with new lines, which, I have to admit, sounds like a good idea. And uh, let's talk about some bad ideas. Okay, bad idea number one. A president of the United States who used to be a Texas governor. Yes, apparently Texas Governor Rick Perry's inching closer to a formal announcement that he will run for president in 2012. I'm pretty sure this nation has had a sufficient experiment with airhead former Texas governors being president. I mean, wouldn't you agree? Come quote from last Sunday's B article by Deborah D'Angelo, who noted that Texas likes to hint that it isn't really a part of the United States. It was a republic once. Let it be a republic again. Bigger and better than before. Whatever. Happy trails. I'll miss Willie Nelson, but this is the price we must pay so we can all get along. She added, honestly, would we miss Texas that much? All that 
Don't mess with Texas outlaw shtick is just tired and boring. Word to Texas. Nobody really wants to mess with you. We're kind of over you. We've seen your best and brightest in the 43rd president, and we're not that impressed. He totaled the family car, threw us the keys, and walked away grinning. So, Texas, you've done quite enough. Thanks for playing. Now, bad idea number two. This may be one of the worst ideas we've covered, I think, in nine years of doing this radio program. And we go out of our way to cover stupid ideas. But our legislators here in California apparently have sent Governor Jerry Brown a bill which is, in their minds, designed to make California more relevant in presidential politics. Now, see if you can follow the logic on this one. I think if you down about a half pint of Jack Daniels before we proceed, you'll be more in keeping with the thought process of of our lawmakers. But if Jerry Brown signs this bill, and it's approved by other states with a total of 270 electoral votes, which is the minimum number needed to elect a president, California will give its electoral votes to not the person who carried the state of California, but the person that won the national election, according to whoever counts the votes. Now, we've covered the story of the theft of election 2000 and the theft of election 2004 pretty extensively on this program. Let's just take a look back at how this would have changed things if these knuckleheads had had this law in effect back then. In the 2000 election, Al Gore carried California, carried it handily. All of California's electoral votes went to Al Gore. He also won the national popular election. So in the case of the 2000 election, nothing would have changed. And by the way, this travesty is a product of the Democratic Party. Apparently, some Democrats, and I don't know, I don't know how you're doing on the Jack Daniels, but apparently some Democrats think that it would have made good sense in the 2004 election to have awarded California's electoral votes to George W. Bush, even though he lost the state of California, but allegedly won the national vote. Now, we've talked to statisticians who have explained that uh, the kind of vote shift you saw based on a sampling of 68,000 means that either George Bush won a million-to-one lottery shot, or for some inexplicable reason, voters who are polled as to or for some inexplicable reasons, voters lied to people about who they voted for on election day for reasons no one can explain, or, third possibility, there was fraud. Now, the logic, such as, such as it is in this case, is that uh, this AB 459 will assure that presidential candidates will come to California to campaign, like you can't watch television, and discuss and address California's unique issues. Now, according to... Uh, some rather suspicious vote tabulating in 2004. George Bush won the popular vote by 3 million votes. This, this represents, however, a 6% shift in the exit polling data to the tallied supposed real count of the votes. We would direct you to some headlines right now taking place this week, particularly an article by Bob Fitrakis, who we've had on this program in the past, talking about how a new, a new court filing in Ohio is revealing how the presidential election was apparently hacked in the state of Ohio. On the day of the 2004 election, both George Bush and Dick Cheney were in Ohio conferring with their campaign director for the state, who, <laughs> doggone it, oddly enough, by coincidence, 
was also Ohio's Secretary of State, the man who was going to count the votes officially. And to make a long story short, a new filing in the King Lincoln Bronzeville versus Blackwell case apparently outlined for the first time the state's election production system configuration. Evidence from the filing suggests that Republican operatives, including the private computer firms hired to manage the electronic voting data, were compromised. And I would add that if they were compromised in Ohio to the tune of switching 60,000 votes and carrying Ohio for Bush instead of Kerry, the same thing could have been repeated across the U.S. to have changed 3 million votes. Of course, all you got to do is flip a million and a half votes. You know what I mean? According to Bob Fitrakis, the court filing also includes a revealing deposition from the late Michael Connell. Yes, the late Michael Connell, who served as the IT guru for the Bush family and Karl Rove. Connell ran the private IT firm GovTech that created the controversial system that transferred Ohio's vote count late in the election night to a partisan Republican server site in Chattanooga, Tennessee, owned by SmartTech, another Republican-connected firm. Noted Fitrakis, that is when the vote shift happened, a vote shift not predicted by exit polls, a vote shift that led to Bush's unexpected victory in Ohio. Michael Connell died a month after his deposition in an unusual plane crash, apparently, after... Scared for his security, Connell asked for protection from the state attorney general in Ohio, Michael Mukasey. Connell told close friends he was expecting to get thrown under the bus by the Rove team because he had evidence linking the GOP operative to the scandal in Ohio and the stolen election, including knowledge of where Rove's missing emails disappeared to. We'll continue to follow this story as it develops, but uh, it's worth noting that Bob Petrakis isn't the only attorney involved in pursuing the truth of this matter. Cliff Arnbeck, the lead attorney in the King-Lincoln case, exchanged emails with IT security expert Stephen Spoonamore and asked Spoonamore whether or not SmartTech had had the capability to, quote, input data, unquote, and thus alter the results of the election. His response was, yes. They would have had data input capacities. The system might have been set up to log which source generated the data, but probably did not. Spoonamore explained that SmartTech had full access and could change things when and if they wanted. After reviewing the architectural maps of the Ohio 2004 election, Spoonamore said that SmartTech was the man in the middle, in my opinion. They were not designed as a mirror site. They were designed specifically to be a man in the middle. A man in the middle is a deliberate computer hacking setup which allows a third party to sit in between computer transmissions and illegally alter the data. Whereas a mirror site is designed as a backup in case the main computer configuration fails. The man in the middle method is how hackers swipe your credit card number and other banking information. So we'll talk about that story more in the future, but just by way of review back to California. There's some compelling evidence that the state of Ohio was stolen. There's some compelling evidence that the entire national election, by a similar method, was stolen for George Bush. And uh, in the wake of someone doing that again in the future, under this current configuration, we will then award our electoral votes in California to whoever perpetrates the fraud on the national scale. Does that seem like a good idea? Yes, the Electoral College system has its problems, but 
Awarding a state's electoral votes to the winner of the popular uh, national vote does not seem to be a good solution to this correspondent. At least not under a system where electronic voting machines can seamlessly alter the data and there's no way to check it later, which basically is our current system in many jurisdictions. California, under our Secretary of State Deborah Bowen, was one of those who squawked about the uh, dubious systems being set up in other states, and I'm reasonably confident that in California our votes are counted honestly, but boy, got my doubts about Ohio, got my doubts about a bunch of other states. How would you feel if you voted for, say, Barack Obama in 2012, only to see that California's electoral votes were awarded to Michelle Bachman, because according to the computers that counted the votes, she won the national election. Seemed like a good idea. Anyway, we got more dumb ideas to cover, but this will need to take a break. So let's do that. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Got lots more. Don't go away. Yeah. 